Welcome everyone to That Anita Live, the talk show for emotional healing through sharing. I'm Anita, your host, and today our topic is when domestic violence is generational. Every family has its issues, but why haven't we looked at our issues from a generational perspective? We've all heard someone be described as they're just like their father or they're just like their mother. As countless research shows, the importance of parental role models on children and the effects family role models can have on our lives into adulthood. L.Y. Marlowe is famed speaker and author, and she is in studio with me today to share her story of domestic violence, but more importantly, what she's doing to prevent it in future generations. Welcome, L.Y. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming out to That Anita Live. Mm -hmm. So tell me, how is it that you got started in the domestic violence realm? Like how is it that? What inspired me <laughs> in terms of the work that I would later do, but how I got involved is that I come from a family of five generations of mothers and daughters. My grandmother, my mother, myself, my daughter, and now my daughter's little girl named Promise. Yes. Um, that suffered and survived over 60 plus years of domestic violence. Um, and in fact, it would be the story of my daughter's little girl named Promise that became the fifth generation when she lay on the bed next to my daughter as my daughter was almost killed, strangled and killed for the second time by Promise's father. And that, uh, that story would inspire me to eventually walk away from a, a very promising corporate career to launch Saving Promise. And um, this was something that was very prevalent in my family for five generations. Yes. Now, what, what happened that made you realize that? Because we all have these issues in our families, but we never look at it from a generational perspective. It's always, you know, whatever the, the hot problem is at that particular time, that's what gets the attention, but we never go back and say, well, hey, wait a minute, grandma had this issue, mom mm -hmm, had this mm -hmm, issue. Mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. brought that to light for you? You know, interestingly enough, Anita, most people think that suddenly after I, I wrote a book called Color Me Butterfly mm -hmm. before Promise was born, this is the four generations, and it tells the story about the four generations, my grandmother, my mother, myself, and my daughter. And most people think that I suddenly had an epiphany to write this book and tell this, this, this horrific story about the uh, terrible abuse that my grandmother suffered at the hands of my grandfather and my mother suffered at the hand of my father and I would later suffer at my daughter's uh, father's hands. And, um, but it, it, it wasn't that I had a sudden epiphany to write this book. I wanted to be an author and I hired a writing coach and the writing coach said, write what you know. And what do we all know? We know our families. Right. And I recall the stories, and I still at that point, when I decided to write that book, it wasn't that I was gonna write this book about this domestic violence in my family. It was that I was going to tell a story. And so it wasn't until I started writing the book and recalling all the terrible stories that my grandmother and my mother had shared, and that I remembered as a little girl. I remember five years old, my mother, She's since passed, but for all of her life, she had this scar from the top of her chest down to her navel. Um, and it was um, there because my father had once beaten her so badly that he burst both her lungs. And she was told to ki kiss her five babies goodbye. 
And my mother would later tell the story as I wrote Color Me Butterfly about how she prayed to eventually walk out of that hospital even though she was told she was going to die and she would walk out of that hospital. But as a little girl, I never forgot that scar till the day she died, she still had that scar from the top of her chest down to her navel. And that reminded me every time I saw my mother get undressed, it reminded me of the abuse. Now, did you ever remember that scar when you were going through your own abusive episodes? I did not. And in fact, um, I, I was 16 years old the first time my eye was blackened and my lip split. Um, it was my first boyfriend. Um, and, and my mother was very Southern and old fashioned, so we weren't allowed to have boy company until we were 16. And so he was someone, he was very prominent in school. He was, he was very uh, popular and handsome, and he chose me, you know. So the first time he hit me, I almost wanted to understand what did I do and what can I do better to make sure I don't disappoint him as opposed to looking at myself. Because what I did remember was my grandmother went through it and my mother went through it, and it was our normal. It didn't feel abnormal to me at that point. That was my next question. Did, did any of that feel wrong to you to be able to say, well, wait a minute, I'm 16, but I should not be treated in this manner? It would not come to feel wrong mm -hmm. or abnormal. I ended up being pregnant by this person by the age of 17 and, and it was my parents decided, my mother at the time, my, my biological father had passed on, but my stepfather decided that I should have this child because it was going to be the only child I could have. Knowing that this was going to be the only child I could have and he continued to beat me, um, I was afraid now, not for my own life, but for that unborn child's life. And I remember one time, I was eight months pregnant, and he came over for boy company, Sunday boy company, mm -hmm. and I took him out on the porch, because I still had not told my mother what was going on. And I said to him, eight months pregnant, I stood there with my bloated belly and, and, and bruised pride, and I said, what you do to me ain't right, and I'm not gonna let you hurt me, and I'm not gonna let you hurt my baby. And the next thing I remember, Anita, him lifting up his still uh, booted foot and kicking me in my eight-month pregnant belly, and I went slamming to the ground. And as if that wasn't good enough or worse enough, he didn't spit on me. And he said, you will never leave me until I was ready for you to leave. Thank God he would eventually go to prison, and I, by, by the grace of God and him going to prison, mm -hmm. I would live and I would go on to now raise my daughter. But what I did with my daughter was I held on too tight. I tried to protect her too much that it probably suffocated her too much that by the time she got into it, now here she was afraid to tell me because I was trying to be too overly protective. Did you, how were you overly protective? Was it verbal? Did you have her involved in classes? Did you expose her to domestic violence prevention? Like, how were you too protective? My, my thing is, I, I grew up in poverty. I grew up in Wilson Park Projects in Philadelphia, and I went to school for 16 years at night to earn three degrees, because the one thing I understood was I never wanted to ever be treated like that again, and the way not to was through education and to creating my own voice and becoming financially independent. So by the time I started raising my daughter, um, 
And I moved out of Wilson Park Project, got my own apartment by the time I was 18, started going to school at night for 16 somewhere years. Somewhere you heard, I, baby, learn to take care of yourself. Uh, learn well, to take care right, of yourself right. and, and to protect this child. And so my protection of her was good protection, I thought, which was didn't let her date until she was 16. I needed to meet the young man. I needed to do, you know, she was in school and made sure she, she was a you know, good student. And so, so keeping her, uh, sort of ostracizing her from things that I felt would harm her or would influence her not to protect who she was and to have self-confidence and self-esteem and all those things. I didn't know that that would backfire. I think we as women, many of us, especially us that have daughters, tend to over, you know, protect sometimes, that sometimes that overly protection can also end up harming and being backfiring in a way that when they do get involved in something, they're too afraid to talk to you because you're the ally. Well, now, what do you think allows or enables domestic violence to be generational or any social ill for that matter because there's domestic violence, there's alcoholism. Right now we have the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What allows that to flow from generation to generation? One word and, and, and then things that perpetrate from that one word, silence. Silence. My grandmother didn't talk to my mother. My mother didn't talk to me. And I'm not ashamed to say that I had not talked to my daughter. Not until promise became the fifth generation was the first time I finally set my daughter down. She came to me one day, now she's, you know, 20 something years old, yes. pregnant by Promise's father and said to me, her words to me weren't, mom, I'm in a, an abusive situation or mom, I'm afraid or mom. She said, mom, he's going to kill me. That got my attention. That got my attention. And, and then later Promise would be born and, 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 and now here she is, becomes the fifth generation when he did try to make good on that, that threat. When, were you on the telephone? Like paint that picture for me, when she made that statement to you, that, that earth shattering, heartbreaking statement. I, I, I will always remember and it is as vivid in my mind today as it was, you know, almost 10 years ago, because Promise is 10 years old now. Um, she was sitting in my kitchen and we were drinking tea or something and right across from me and she just she kept her head down um and she had this she had hair long you know hair at the time and she had covering her neck okay. um and she said mom he's going to kill me and she moved her hair back from around her neck and i saw the welts where he had grabbed her and strained he and he didn't made good on that first one, and then he tried to kill it her second time, and, and that would, you know, ultimately um, uh, wake her up as well. But, uh, and, and I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. Um, what was your first thought when she made that statement to you? My first thought was, I can't believe this is happening again. Because by then I had already written Color Me Butterfly, mm -hmm. I have raised her to, to try to avoid being in a situation like that. My grandmother, my mother, myself, and now my daughter. I cannot believe this is happening again. I remember that going through my head. So what did you do? I would eventually get her and later promise would be born out of that situation. I would move her to Philadelphia to live with my mother um, and, and try to get her to 
understand her own self-worth, her own self-value. And I remember my mother and I saying to her when she was pregnant now by this person, we're going to be that baby's daddy. You know, you don't, you deserve better. Mm -hmm. You're beautiful. You're smart. I didn't raise you that way. You deserve better. And, 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 and not only that, but I also felt like I needed to do something uh, to, to, to sort of infuse all of this energy into an area that I can help. And so I would eventually go on, as you know, Anita, and launch a national organization mm -hmm. called Saving Promise, inspired by Promise's story and the five generations in my family. Um, and now, I, mm -hmm. three degrees, mm -hmm. engineer by trade, and, and you left your good six-figure <laughs> job. I know. <laughs> to, to start this, and, and starting an organization, it sounds glamorous. Mm. But at the desk, in the middle of the night, trying to get all the paperwork together, trying to find funding, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. trying to find viewers, readers, that's very, it's very tough. It's very challenging to, to walk away from a career, mind you, that it took me 16 years to build. Um, I was progressing very uh, rapidly up the, up the executive ladder. I was not only, in my mind, I was not only going to uh, climb the ladder, I was going to shatter the glass ceiling. Um, plans. And, and plans. And it, it, you know, and then to walk away eventually and, and found a nonprofit. Well, and 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 it's, and it's titled nonprofit. <laughs> there is no profit, and and I would go on and work for many years without a salary, and 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 um, and start this organization. But I believed in it. You know, I I believe that we all have a purpose, and 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 I know it's cliche to say, you know, the things that happened to the five generations of women in my family. You know, I I you know, like my mama used to say, "What don't kill you make you stronger." Through that came my strength. Because I believe that every one of us is put on this earth to do different, to, to live a purpose. And this is my purpose. Did my family have to go through that for me to achieve my purpose? Perhaps not. But it, is, it, would, become a, it, it would just become a crisis if I didn't take that and do something. To not only help Promise mm -hmm. and my family, but help other little Promises and their families too. And that's why I launched Saving Promise. And our whole focus is around uh, greater public education and prevention. We need to get ahead of the problem yes. and be more proactive than reactive. We would go on over the 10 years that I've now been uh, uh, building Saving Promise. We just last year partnered with the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health mm -hmm. to launch one of the first of its kind uh, research and development learning labs to put forth more innovative, uh, evidence-based public education prevention programs to affect and touch every sector in our community. The way we get ahead of this problem mm -hmm. is we, we introduce public education and prevention in the workplace, in, in public and private schools. And I'm talking grade level age school, promise age, you know, obviously age Third appropriate. Grade, fourth yeah, grade, we got fifth to grade, yes. reach them then. When they start to grow, you don't wait until you sit across the table from your daughter with handprints around her neck. We start just like we did 25, 30 plus years ago when we started sex education. Right. We need to start education around healthy relationships. 
what does that mean? We need to go in the workplace because you might be sitting across from your, your coworker and not understanding why she's so shy and doesn't speak a lot or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it may be because she's lost her voice because every night she goes home, she gets beat. Right. You know, right. we need to put better programs in our public health system um, in, in the healthcare community. You know, so when you go into your doctor's office under the uh, former uh, 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 Affordable Care Act, there was legislation that required insurance companies to pay for screening yes. for domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So now when you sit behind that white door with the, your doctor in confidence and they supposed to ask, are you a victim of domestic violence or a perpetrator? Because I also believe that we can't continue to just address one side of yes. this. We got to also help now, coming from five generations, it would be easy for me, Anita, to just say, you know, just lock them up and throw away the key, but that's not a solution. Right, right. We got to help those that abuse, too, because they because, are hurting, too. Because that's a cycle. It's a vicious they, cycle, they and go, that's how the generational they go curse in, starts. But, but they serve the time and come back into the community and commit the same crimes again. Absolutely. So, so even though my daughter's not with her, the person that abused her, he's moved on to another victim. Yes. She's safe. Another victim. But the, now they're somebody else's mm -hmm. daughter. We'll be right back to hear more about how LY is making an impact in the community against domestic violence. What if I told you that you could stop the negative tape from playing inside your head? What if with seven simple steps, you could leave the pain of the past behind and live every day as your true authentic self? It is possible and you can do it. The ebook, Seven Simple Steps to Beat Emotional Baggage, How to Become Whole, Healed, Healthy, and Happy, shares how to resolve emotional baggage. And feel free to live true to your own personality, spirit, and character. Transform negative thinking into positive thinking and become equipped to boldly face your past and resolve emotional pain. Get your free copy at thatanitalive.com slash ebook. And we're back discussing domestic violence with L.Y. Marlowe. What impact have you seen the learning lab at Harvard? First of all, wait a minute, let's back up. How did you get? <laughs> <laughs> how did you get the learning lab with Harvard? Oh, I, I will tell you, I, I, it took me uh, the first five years of launching Saving Promise. It took me some time to figure out what needed to be done. Okay. You know, one thing I understood was that there were a lot of wonderful organizations out here that are doing some impactful work. Yes. And I wanted to figure out how do we build on a lot of that work um, and how do we advance that? Because clearly the statistics those sometimes in some areas are improving, they're getting worse in other areas. Yes. You know, we need to get ahead of the problem. And the other thing that I understood is that although we're all doing very prominent, profound work, we're working in silos. Yes. And we're working in silos, and that is not the way to get ahead of a, uh, of a problem like this or to build a movement. And so I understood that we needed to put forward uh, not only more innovative prevention strategies and public education strategies, we need to work in cross-sector 
uh, collaborative uh, ways that bringing sectors from different sectors together, from the public health, from the academia, okay. from the corporate, from the advocacy, from, um, from media, and the like. And so I hosted uh, several years ago a summit bringing uh, leaders from each of those sectors together um, to talk about how can we collaboratively come together. And in that day, in that summit, we had the pleasure of Dr. Michelle uh, Dean Williams, uh, Dean Dr. Michelle Williams from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health there. And the question that we left that day asking was, where do we go from here? And when somebody asks me that question, I don't just go home and say, okay, where, where do I go from here? Where do we go we, from here? Right. And I said, we need a very prominent uh, institution like Harvard with us in this fight because they are the most recognizable institution yes. in the world. Yes. Um, and, and they are movers and shakers. And so I approached them and, and long story short, um, had to you know, put together a very, uh, very prolific and, and um, uh, uh, advanced type of strategy that they signed up, Dr. Michelle uh, Dean Williams said yes to. And so, um, so now we um, have collaborated to launch this learning lab. And our whole focus is around uh, uh, three core areas. First, greater research. Okay. We need better research. And not just black and white in terms of statistics, because, that kind of right, thing. Right, it happened. Is the right now the, the really only research that we get? Yes, that, it happened. <laughs> but what the research we need to understand is what can we do to prevent it, or what can we do to raise greater public education, or what's working and what's not working, okay. and okay. and looking at other countries like Australia is leap years ahead of the work that they do in this space. What can we learn from them? around this. Okay. So research. The second thing is more innovative um, prevention and public education and policies. So when we introduce, how can we introduce uh, policies in the school system, in the workplace, in the healthcare sector? And then finally, the third area is working across, across sectors. We gotta come together. We gotta stop working in Because silos. right now it's basically just a family and a crime issue. Is a family is a crime issue, mm -hmm. and is whoever that constituent is, whether it's a national organization or a local shelter, they're all trying to do it on their that own. That does the services here. Yeah, we yes. have to come together and, and figure out more progressive, uh, collaborative ways of addressing what this. What impact have you seen the lab have so far? Well, we are just beginning to um, bring in uh, the cross-sector collaborative partners. Mm -hmm. So, because we want to make sure we move forward in a very strategic way. For example. One of our partners is uh, the CDC, um, who is uh, leading the way in this space as well. Um, and so we're starting to bring partners like the CDC and, and from these different sectors to come together. And the first thing we're going to do is do uh, uh, the research to, so we don't just jump out there. And part of that research is going to help us understand what's been done and what's working, what's not working, and then build from there. And then develop the strategic plan to begin to execute different programs across these different sectors and different uh, populations. Now that's busy. <laughs> that's busy is an, in and of itself that's busy. But yes. you have your own movement that you've launched. Yeah, my my third book. Uh, I I finally you know after writing Color Me Butterfly, I could not write another book like that because I had to live those stories of All my grandmother again. and my mother and myself. 
But, and, and people wanted me, that book would go on to win about 10 awards and people wanted to know what happened because it ended with my fourth generation with my, with my daughter. Promise wasn't even born when I was writing that book. Um, and, and many people have said, oh, why are you gonna write a sequel? I could never write a sequel, but here's what I could do. I could share my story about what it took for me to do what I do now. So I would go on to write the book, Don't Look at the Monster. And the title of that book came from Promise, yeah. who at age three, I just lost my mother. I was going through a divorce. I was, I was ready to walk away, honestly, from saving problems because it was too hard. Mm -hmm. It is too hard. Um, and um, I was coming from New York City back to DC um, to get a few hours of sleep to, to fly out to Seattle to, to, to speak. And, um, and I was in a bad way. So I'm sitting on the Amtrak train and I picked up the phone, I called my daughter. And I called her a few times um, because I, my, I just lost my mother and she yeah. knew that what was to come. And she got to the place where she said, mom, hold on. And she went and she woke up Promise. She started to put Promise on the phone every time I would call in this way. So that night she put Promise on the phone. Promise was three at the time. And she got on the phone and she said, she calls me Bumblebee and she said, Bumblebee, are you crying? And I said, yes, baby, I'm crying. And she thought real long and hard, like she was thinking about something. And what she was thinking about was something my daughter and I would say to her at two years old when she discovered she was afraid of the dark. Mm -hmm. And we would say to her, just close your eyes real tight and just don't look at the monsters. Mm -hmm. And so now fast forward on that train, she says, but Bumblebee, just don't look at the monsters. And I would title that book, Don't Look at the Monster, which is my story and memoir around the many fears and challenges and things that I faced that I would finally come to the term as monsters um, that, um, that really made me understand what it means for me to overcome those monsters and embrace my own purpose, passion, and power. And so now I've launched an org a, a, a platform called Monsterize to also inspire other women to confront and face their fears, their monsters, because you can be or do, I know that whole law of attraction thing people believed yes. in and then it kind of faded, but I honestly believe that every woman can live and be and thrive or anything that they want to do. And, and I want to help using my story as somebody who, who overcame my own challenges, and I still struggle with my monsters. Fear, there's worry, there's doubt, there's regret. So I've, I've, these, these monsters are these different uh, uh, challenges that we all, particularly as women, face, and how do we overcome that? How do we overcome that, and how can I inspire and empower women um, around something I'm calling the monster theory. How can I get them connected to confronting their monsters and also going on to embrace their own passion, purpose, and power? How will you do that? How will you bring that about? Well, one way is through uh, the monster theory, which we're launching a, a, a bi-directional platform that would first create the monster experience where we're going to be hosting a one-woman type of show um, at different platforms around the country. Eventually, we're gonna kick it off here in D.C. Um, where we invite women to come out and hear about this whole monster theory. Yeah. And we, it's very engaging. It's not just hearing about it, but we engage women in confronting their monsters, understanding what their monsters are, if it's fear, if it's worry, if it's doubt, if it's despair. Um, and then secondly, we're creating an online platform 
um, um, of webinars, of, of, of inspirational blogs, um, and inspirational talks. There's something called the Master Talk that we're doing, mm -hmm. similar to like your TED Talk kind of thing, mm -hmm. but the mm -hmm. Master Talk. Um, and, and, and giving women the resources and the tools to not only understand what is their master, whether it's fear, if it worry, is it regret, guilt, um, guilt mm -hmm. if it's grief. And grief is not just grieving the loss of someone. Grieving could be the loss of yourself. Yes. We lose ourselves in relationships. We lose ourselves in our career, in our family. Mm -hmm. But what about me? What do I love? What's my passion? So it could be grief. Grieving that former self and finding that authentic self of who you really want to be, what you really want to do. What are you passionate about? Mm -hmm. I tell people I'm passionate about writing and, and inspiring other women and saving promise is my purpose. So I'm clear, it took me 10 years to get there, <laughs> right? So we wanna build that platform and give women the resources and tools to do that. And then finally, uh, the third angle is offering retreats for women to go away for a weekend where we would invite other life coaches and wellness coaches and inspirational people to come together and by the time we're done with those women in that weekend, yes. <laughs> yes. you will not only know who your monster is, <laughs> Um, but but you, you will have the tools to begin to confront them. Now more than ever, it is important for us as a community and as a family to begin to care for each other. Mm -hmm. If you are being emotionally, mentally, or even physically abused, if it happened some time ago, you could still be dealing with the effects now. Abuse can manifest, as LY said, as fear, as guilt, as regret, low self-esteem, you could have lost yourself in the experience of being abused. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Get help is what matters. Make the decision to work toward achieving a better life. Help is here for you because I know sometimes we don't want to be fixed. We just want to be heard. The National Domestic Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE. That's one 800 799-7233. You could reach out to LY on lymarlow.com. Make the commitment to start your journey to emotional healing today. I'm Anita, your host. Be sure to check out thatanitalive.com for where and when to see our next episode.